Previously on Hate No More. They sent me to Trenton State Prison when I was 20 years old. You're listening to a man who went by the nickname Casper. And this guy, he comes in my cell and he went to grab a hold of me and I swung as hard as I could and slid him wide open. This is the story of how, after being locked up for homicide, he got drawn into the white supremacy movement. I looked down at the floor and you could just see this trail of blood coming out of my cell, going down the tear, and I'm like, damn it, I'm going to the hole. But most importantly, it's about how and why he ultimately left the white supremacy movement and how he started helping others leave as well. We had our 14 rules of Aryan conduct. If you broke one, other members would band together to sanction you. I asked Casper to tell me stories of people getting sanctioned, and the first one he thought of was when he got in trouble for talking to his childhood friend, No Good. I'm not gonna quit talking to No Good. The other members of SPS weren't happy to see him being friendly with a black inmate. And so this time, instead of banding together to attack a rival gang member, they banded together to attack Casper. The deepest regret comes from hurting someone you love. Throughout Casper's teenage years, he'd noticed that his father made frequent mysterious trips to the hospital. Now, his father had been in a motorcycle accident years before and often complained about back pain. So every time he went to the hospital after that, I thought maybe it was something either with his back or from this accident. I had no idea that he was getting, you know, part of his lung removed, his lymph nodes removed. I didn't even know any of that until I was about 18. I found out he had cancer. This was about a year or two before the homicide on the boardwalk. Casper had been getting into all kinds of trouble. And at the moment, he was in the Cape May County Jail for burglary. And my dad came up and saw me and said, hey, this has got to end. Like, you, you got to stop with the madness now, you know? And I knew something was wrong, you know? Like, you could just look at somebody and you know something's not right, you know? And he told me, he was like, I'm dying, you know? And I'm like, get out of here. And he goes, I'm dying, you know? I got cancer. They're not going to be able to fix this. I'm going to die, you know? And I'm like, are you serious? And he was like... I'm going to give him one more chance to do this operation. If it doesn't work, I'm done. I'm like, okay, so what's this operation? He was like, they want to take out my intestines. And I'm like, fuck you mean take out your intestines? Like, you, you need that to live. <laughs> and he's like, just, we'll deal with it. You know, so I was like, all right, dad, you know, I'll, I'll start doing what I got to do. After that conversation, Casper was on his best behavior. He got out of jail early, and he focused on staying out of trouble while his dad gave the doctors one last shot to cure him. So they, they did this operation. They took out six feet of his intestines, and he, was, he just wasn't the same after that. A short time later, they went on a little hunting trip together. It's just simple. We were going to go you know, shoot a couple squirrels, whatever. But it didn't go well. Casper's father, who had always been a larger-than-life figure in Casper's eyes, was so weakened by the treatment that he had trouble controlling his hands. This is a man that 
was a combat veteran, had hunted his whole life, been to Vietnam, you know, the whole nine yards. And he couldn't load a 22. He kept dropping the bullets. <laughs> so we just sat there for a while. And uh, I remember him telling me, it's all right, don't even pick him up, leave him down there. You know, he, he put the gun back in the truck. And he just sat there making squirrel calls, you know, doing the different calls. And he's got a bunch of red squirrels and gray squirrels out there arguing with each other. <laughs> a couple of months later, I was, I was in jail for homicide. I remember my dad coming in the courtroom and just looking defeated. You know, and then after I talked to him and I told him what happened, he was like, we're going to get you a real lawyer. We'll get you out of here. Don't worry about it. And he, he sacrificed everything trying to save me, he sold his house. He sold his guns, whatever he could to help me pay for a lawyer and try and get me out. Casper wanted to get out, desperately. But as time passed, the outside world faded dimly into the background. And while his father worked tirelessly to free him, Casper began working tirelessly to build his new gang. This is Hate No More the story of one man's journey into and out of violent white supremacy. I'm Henry Rambo. Throughout his childhood, one of Casper's best friends was a black kid who went by the nickname No Good. He was, like Casper, quite a troublemaker. And also like Casper, he ended up in New Jersey's state prison system. Remarkably, the two of them remained close friends even when Casper was most deeply committed to white supremacy. Every time we were in the same prison together and we'd see each other be like, what's up, buddy? You know, and give each other a big hug and everything. We'd sit down, we'd talk. And of course, people in the Bloods organization would look at him like, why are you hanging out with that skinhead dude? Like, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> and he'd tell him like, no, nah, that's my boy. You know, like, listen, you put hands on him, I'm hurting you. You know, and then I would get it from the white guys, you know, and SPS and everything like, listen, man, why are you still talking to that dude? And I'm like, look, same thing. You touch him, we're fighting. You know, like he's off limits, period. You know, I, I'll fight for him if I have to. And they're like, all right, well, gear up because you're getting a sanction. SPS's rules don't say explicitly that you can't talk to a non-white person. But code number 12 says... Be cunning as the fox with enemies and scralings, as their goal is your extinction. And since black people were considered enemies, being friendly with them wasn't an option. But in Casper's mind, No Good was an exception. And as soon as No Good arrived in Rahway, Casper started racking up sanctions. The way it was set up back then, they used to have these transfer sheets that they would post on the bulletin boards. And I would check these just to see if anybody I knew was coming into the prison or leaving the prison or whatever. And I saw his name on there and I'm like, son of a bitch, he's coming here. And when he first walked in the raw way, 
I was one of the first people that greeted him. Even the other bloods, you know, a lot of the other bloods didn't get to say anything to him before I did. Not only did Casper greet no good, he put together a care package for him. The day he got there, he was in the holding cage, and I walked by going to the chow hall to go to dinner, and I saw him in there, and I was like, no good, you know, and he looks over, and he was like, Casper, what's up, man? I was like, I got you. I was like, don't worry about nothing. I got a whole bag ready for you. You know, as soon as they tell you what wing you're going on, you let me know, I'll get it to you. Well, he ended up coming the same wing I was on. So it wasn't that hard. I just walked down to a cell and was like, boom, here you go. You know, you got soap, shampoo, you got some coffee, soup, cigarettes, everything's in there, don't worry about it. Casper dropped the package off right out in the open and his comrades in SPS didn't fail to notice. You know, a couple of guys were like, man, did you just give that nigga, you know, a bunch of stuff? And I'm like, that's my brother. And they're like, oh, you're getting hurt. And I'm like, bring it. You know, <laughs> let's go, bring it. You know, I'm telling you right now, anybody touches him, I'll kill you. You know, flat out. And that that was the beginning of it. You know, they, they beat me up in the shower, knocked me out, you know, and... Next day, we're out in the yard. No good was like, man, what the hell happened to your face? And I was like, yeah, you know, guys got all pissed off because I gave you a bunch of stuff. And he was like, yeah, what's this state prison skinheads thing? I'm like, me, Johnny and Baron started the gang. You know, I, I don't know what else to tell you. And he was like, he's like, you of all people. He's like, I'd have never seen it. He was like, you're too damn smart for that shit. And I'm like, dude, I'm in prison. You know, what in Rome do is the Romans. And he's like, all right, I can't argue with that. But listen, he was like, who are we beating up? He was willing to fight, you know, whoever beat me up, though. And I'm like, nah, don't worry about it. I got it. After getting sanctioned, Casper was supposed to stop talking to No Good. But no matter how many times they beat him up, he just wouldn't quit. Guys would come up to me and be like, listen, we told you about talking to the black guy. Of course, they wouldn't call him a black guy. They'd call him the N-word. And I'd be like, look. What point of this are you not understanding? That's my boy. Me and him grew up together. He's more family to me than my own family. And if you want to fight over it, let's get there. And we'd go in the shower and we'd bang it out. You know, and most of the time it was me fighting three other people. You know, and I I took some lumps, you know, but I, I gave, I tried to give as good as I got, you know, and I got knocked out more than once just for talking to him. And I still went back and talked to him. This went on for several years. Between then and 1997, I probably fought a good six or seven times just for talking to him. And everybody just kind of figured it out after a while. Like, look, he's not letting go of, you know, hanging out with him. Like, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to kill him. And if you kill him, we're going to kill you. <laughs> so it is what it is, you know, just let it go. Being friendly with non-white people wasn't the only way to earn a sanction. More than once, Casper himself cracked down on SPS members who violated the rules. We had this one guy, Tommy. Uh, man, Tommy was a good kid. Casper pauses and tells me he feels more guilty about bringing Tommy into the movement than anyone else. He saw Tommy as someone who had a lot of potential, but was just on the wrong track. And I seen Tommy as somebody who really 
needed some guidance, you know, and I was like, Hey, you know, why don't you come over here and talk to me, man? You know, like you seem like a, a smart kid, seem like you got your shit together. Why are you even here? Tommy's story was that he had some friends who decided they wanted to rob a few convenience stores. They pressured him to come along and he resisted, but eventually they convinced him to be their getaway driver. And I guess it, in his mind, he thought if they got caught and he was just a driver, he's not gonna get in that much trouble. And then Tommy found out that he was gonna get 20 years apiece for these robberies. And I was like, holy crap, dude. Thinking he was doing Tommy a favor, Casper brought him into SPS. You know, and told him, look, you know, quit doing the drugs, you know, drinking hooch and all that crap. Start working out with me. You know, we'll get you on a better diet and everything. We'll get you back into shape. Get you, you know, into, into school so you can get your GED and everything. And then who knows? He told Tommy it might be possible to get some of his time knocked off, get out early, and get his life back together. This is a typical thing gang leaders tell people to lure them in. And it seemed like Tommy was on board with the idea. Tommy was doing good. And, you know, like I said, we were working out together. You know, he's eating right and everything. And he's studying all this white supremacist literature. And then Tommy started doing heroin. According to Casper, it was quite easy to get drugs in prison. Back then, back in the 1990s, there were more drugs in prison than there were on the street. Everybody was getting high. By this time, No Good had been in Rahway long enough to establish a thriving drug trade. And since he was a good friend of Casper's, Tommy thought he would be the best person to get his heroin from. And indeed, No Good was happy to sell him as much as he could afford. And more. Well, Tommy couldn't pay his debt. So, of course, no good comes to me. He goes, listen, I know you're going to want to punch me in the face over this, but you need to do something about your boy. You know, and I'm like, all right, what's going on? And he was like, guy owes me 200 bucks. You know, I'm like, how the hell does he owe you $200? And he was like, buying smack. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, why are you selling him dope? And he was like, because he wanted it. He was like, I'm here to make money. Yeah, you know, like, it's simple as that. And I'm like, all right, you know, I can't really fault you on that. That's your hustle. So I tell him, I said, all right, I'll handle it. Don't worry about it. And I approached Tommy on my own. I didn't tell anybody about this yet. I approached him on my own and I'm like, listen, be honest. What's this about you having a dope debt? You know, he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Sure, so you're getting high. And he's like, so what? What if I am? And I'm like, dude, seriously? Like, did you not read our bylaws and shit? You know, you're SPS, man. You're held to a higher standard. You can't be doing that shit. He's like, well, you guys don't say nothing about anybody smoking pot or anything like that. I'm like, because pot's not going to get you killed. <laughs> like, heroin's going to kill you. Casper told Tommy that he'd take care of his debt for him. But Tommy would have to quit doing heroin. And he was like, no, 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 I got it. And I'm like, this isn't, you know, me asking if you want me to. I'm telling you, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to take care of your debt and I own you. Paying the debt wasn't hard for Casper. He had plenty of money from running a gambling ring, charging people for tattoos and selling artwork. 
so he paid no good in cigarettes and other commissary items. And then for the next, what the hell was it? It was, I think it was about eight weeks. Um, Tommy was my gopher and I had Tommy going for everything. Hey, see that guy all the way at the other end of the yard and you can probably go on the, the internet and find images of Rawway. The main yard in Rawway is almost two football fields. And I'd tell Tommy, I'd, I'd purposely walk all the way down to the end of the yard and sit on this one bench. And I'd point out somebody all the way down at the other end on the weight pile. And I'd be like, hey, see that old guy down there, you know, wearing that hat? you know, down there in the, the weight pile. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, run down there and get me a cigarette off of him. You got 30 seconds to get back here. And he'd haul ass down the fucking yard for a cigarette. And he'd come back and I'm already smoking a cigarette by then. He was like, dude, I just ran down there and got this. I'm like, that's nice. Run down there and give it back to him. Tell him I'm good. And just simple shit like that, just to make his life a living hell for about eight weeks. Casper may have enjoyed making Tommy's life a living hell, but in his mind, there was a noble reason for it. I told him, if I wear you out enough and I get you tired enough, especially when I know you're coming out here, you know, tuned up, doing heroin, and it middle of the summertime, it's scorching hot out. I got him running up down the yard while he's high. He's puking all over the place and everything. And I'm like, sooner or later, you're going to figure it out. Quit getting high. <laughs> Breaking Tommy's heroin addiction fit perfectly with the mission of SPS, the microcosmic and macrocosmic objectives Casper described earlier. It was all part of a much higher purpose. You know, we pushed education. We pushed being healthy. You know, don't do the harder drugs. You know, try and keep yourself, you know, in physical fighting condition, especially if you're in prison, you know, take care of your family, teach your kids how to be morally responsible. These positive messages proved to be the ideal Trojan horse for delivering the white supremacist propaganda. They were what made it possible for otherwise good people to be won over. That's what gets a lot of people indoctrinated into this. They see those good things and it kind of negates the horrendous things and they're like oh well yeah you know a lot of people say that's not good but look how good this is humans in general including white supremacists have a deep need to feel like they're on the side of the good guys this was evident in sps's approach to recruitment as well we would approach guys you know that we thought were you know decent people um no sex offenders that's completely out. Casper would make prospects show him their paperwork to be sure they weren't in for a sex offense. He would also call people on the outside and have them research prospective members, a sort of background check. There were several things that could disqualify a person. A sex offense is probably the biggest offense other than um, being a race traitor which a race trader is if you cohabitate and have kids with someone outside of the white race, well, you're just as bad and we no longer consider you white. Domestic violence was also unacceptable. 
we wouldn't take you if you were an abusive spouse. You know, if you were in prison for child abuse or beating up your wife or whatever, no, we don't want you, man. You know, that that's not okay. That's weak. You want to fight somebody, go fight a man. You don't beat on a woman. You know, you don't beat on kids. You don't beat on women. You don't beat on old people. Casper says that no matter what tattoos you sported or what gang you belonged to, he, Johnny, and Baron, at least, wouldn't even recognize you as a true white supremacist if you violated this code. We always had that outlook. There were two guys in New Jersey. I can't remember their names. Apparently, a black family moved into their neighborhood. Um, they went to this house and, like, I don't think it was the whole family. I think a couple of them survived, but they, like, went in there with baseball bats and they beat the father to death and they beat one of the kids to death and then of course they came into the prison system and the actual you know hardcore white supremacists like myself and you know johnny and baron and pretty much everybody in sps all of us told these two you know they're like hey you know 88, what's up, brother? And we're like, no. You know, what do you mean, no? You beat a fucking kid to death, dude, a nine-year-old. You know, and they're like, oh, whatever, you know, they ain't white. No. You know, it, listen, you got no backup here, man. You beat a fucking child to death. You know, oh, whatever, you're going to defend N-words or whatever. Listen, dude, you want to go fucking beating on somebody, try me. You beat a fucking nine-year-old to death. Get the fuck out of my face. Hearing a story in which the hardcore white supremacists come off as the good guys causes some cognitive dissonance. And Casper recognizes this. And that kind of freaks people out when I tell them that. You know, because they're like, well, you were a white supremacist. What do you know about honor? And it's like, see, you don't, you don't get it. Even though this is a horrible belief, these people still have a sense of morals and ethics, you know, pride. And it's it's pride based on false ideologies and ideas, but they do still have a sense of pride and honor and respect. That sense of pride and honor makes an organization all the more alluring. A lot of people wanted to join, and that gave Casper and his comrades the luxury of being selective. We didn't normally take in people that would approach us and say, hey, you know, I want to I want to join up with you guys. Um, normally, we'd be like, yeah, no, you know, you don't come looking for us. We come looking for you. One of the biggest questions I had for Casper here was how quickly SPS grew. I want to say in the first t- probably two, three months, we maybe got a dozen people patched up. You know, well, prospecting. Then, of course, after their, you know, 90 days or whatever, they patched up. And that was while Casper and Bobby were both in ad seg. Once Bobby and I got out of the hole and we hit the yard and rawway, we started approaching more people, you know, and getting them to come in. Now we got 20 people within, you know, a month during that three months that they're prospecting, we're telling them, even though you're a prospect, look for other people or recommend other people. 
whether they're here in Rawway, in a different prison, as long as they're in prison and they're doing at least 10 years or better. I asked Casper how many people he brought into SPS in total during his entire incarceration. 30. Minimum 30. Just, yeah. More, you know, I, I can't even remember all their names or anything. Like, I remember a lot of their nicknames. 30 might not sound like a lot, but when you take into account the fact that each one of those people would be tasked with bringing in more recruits, who would then bring in still more, the power of exponential growth takes over. By 1996, we probably had 300, you know, patched up members across the state. We were in every single prison in the state except for Avenel and Midstate because Avenel and Midstate is where they have the sex offenders and protective custody. So effective were their recruitment efforts that SPS quickly spread beyond the state border. By the time I got out in 2004, there was SPS members. I, I know we had a couple in Florida. I don't know if we had any in Georgia at the time, but um, Virginia, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, uh, Maryland, like there were SPS members all over the place. In just a few years, SPS had taken off faster than Casper ever could have imagined. It was running like a well-oiled machine. Membership was growing, and the ideology was spreading. He felt good about it, proud of his accomplishments. And that was the state of mind he was in in 1995, when a visit from his father brought the outside world crashing back in. It was, it was bad. Um, I wasn't expecting a visit, you know, so... When they told me I had a visit, I was like, who the hell's here? You know, and they're like, I don't know, you got a visit. So I went down to the visit hall and I walk in and I didn't even recognize him. Um, he was in a wheelchair, weighed about 90 pounds. And I, I walked right past him. And then I heard his voice, hey boy. And I looked down, and just, oh shit. You know, and I'm like, Dad? You know, and he was like, yeah. You know, I told you I was dying. It's like, holy fuck. And, yeah, he told me he just wanted to come up and say goodbye. He wanted to do it in person because he wasn't going to make it for me to get out. And I told him, all about SPS and what we had started. I wish I hadn't. I wish I would have just never said anything to him. It broke his heart. I think it would have hurt him less if I had just never spoke to him. But I told him about starting SPS and what I believed and just the, the look on his face. And I was like, why do you look so sad? And he was like, how can you be like that? You know, after everything, you know, our family has been through and everything that I've tried to teach you, how can you do that? 
And I told him because it's the right thing to do. Casper says that three weeks later, he was notified that his father had died. And even today, over 25 years later, he can't stop replaying those words in his head. It's probably one of the only times I ever regret saying something. Yeah, like I said, I think that hurt him more than anything I had ever did. I don't know if it was because I was just so fucking mad or if I just believed the bullshit that, you know, people were feeding me through the propaganda. But either way, I justified it and kept doing it for a long time. Casper has spent decades coming to terms with how deeply he hurt his father and also with how deeply his father hurt him. If there is such a thing as inherited sin, perhaps it comes to us through the wounds inflicted on us by our parents. As I listened to Casper describe the things he'd done, I often found myself thinking, how could he be like that? But after he told me about his childhood, I thought, how could he not have been like that? His early years were such a carnival of trauma and abuse, it's a miracle that he's been able to find the empathy he now has. And one of the most surprising revelations about his past was that the homicide that night on the boardwalk wasn't the first time he ended up stabbing someone he'd seen hitting a girl. The first time had happened years earlier, and the girl was his sister. We'll hear more about that next time on Hate No More. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment right now, yes, now, to rate it, review it, and share it. To support us and get immediate ad-free access to all episodes, go to patreon.com slash hate no more or click on the link in the show notes. Hate No More was written and produced by me, Henry Rambo. Sound design was provided by Michael Parkhurst at Nostalgic Innovations. Special thanks to my wife and to Ryan, Allison, George, and, of course, Casper. Finally, there's more than enough outrage and hate in the world already. If you log onto social media at all today, Instead of sharing what upsets you, do what you can to make kindness and empathy go viral. We all need to play a higher game. And with that, thank you for listening.